Hello, and welcome to this edition of the EV Revolution Show audio podcast. With your host, Kenneth Bacor. This is episode 43, recorded on October 7th, 2022. This episode of the EV Revolution Show is sponsored by File Sanctuary. Need a great web host for your business? Need to get email at yourdomain.com? They provide professional, feature-rich web and email hosting for any project you have in mind. Get started today at filesanctuary.net forward slash cloud and save 10% with promo code EVREVSHOW. All right, and yeah, welcome to this edition of the EV Revolution Show audio podcast, and this may be out as a video as well if you're if you're watching it in that medium. As you heard, my name is Kenneth Bocor, your host, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me for this edition. As you folks know, I say at every show, I'm always looking for smart people that are involved in the automotive marketplace, uh, especially in the EV side of things. And I'm I'm really stoked and and quite excited to have um, my first author. Uh, guest on the show because I haven't had anyone like him before. Um, his name is Mr. David Welch. And how are you, David? Good to have you on. Thanks for having me on. Uh, if you're looking for smart people, I, I'm not sure I can help you, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, that's not what you told me before I pressed the record <laughs> button. Noah. it's all good. You are super smart. Uh, the reason you're on the show, and I'll do a bit of an intro for you, David. So you've just um, come out and published a book um, which uh, we're going to get into, and it's called Charging Ahead, uh, General Motors, Mary Barra, and the Reinvention of an American Icon. And I love the title. And as as my listeners know, I've been really stoked on GM. <laughs> I've been talking a lot about them since 2016 when I got into following and covering the EV marketplace. And, you know, we're going to talk about some of that love-hate stuff with GM, I think, in our segment here. Uh, but it, it's a fascinating subject, and especially involving what Mary has done for the company and for that marketplace. Now, you know, the book, your book really provides an in-depth look into the rise of, of one of the most powerful uh, female executives, of course, Mary is, uh, how she, you know, she's broken that glass ceiling and everything, which is great. Um, her forward-thinking vision, and that's probably the main takeaway that I've got from your book, because I really didn't know a lot about her prior to reading this. Um, her approach to leadership and her accomplishments against the odds, which is which is fantastic. Now, um, as I said before, I hit the record button, David. I read this in a weekend, and that's highly unusual for me because it takes me a long time to read just because I'm a slow reader. But you wrote it really well, and and to give the folks um, listening and watching a sense of who you are. Um, you're in Detroit uh, today. We can see you're in the lovely boardroom there. You're the bureau chief for Bloomberg News, and you also cover the auto industry for Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Um, you've been with them for a dozen years. Um, you were at the Detroit bureau chief for Business Week as well. So you were talking about the stock market a little earlier. Um, you've written six cover stories about GM uh, for Bloomberg Business Week, including a September 19, 2019 cover profile of Mary. So you know her quite well, as well as major articles and news breaking coverage about all the major auto companies and related topics. So you're not just following General Motors. You've won some awards for your accomplishment and hard work from organizations such as Society of American Business Editors and Writers, Business Journalists of the Year Awards, the Clarion Awards, the New York Press Club, the Deadline Club, and Society Professional Journalists. So again, it's an honor to welcome you. And that's a lot of accomplishments, David. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
It does make me feel old, though. You got to be around a long time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's so. You got to have a couple years under your belt, right? Because <laughs> there were no junior awards there. They were just all implied, I guess. Senior, yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, I was an old man. Uh, no, but th- 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 look, thanks for that intro. That's great. Um, yeah, I've been covering GM. I'm covering the auto industry, really. It was one of my first jobs in the mid-90s. And I was writing about the auto industry with the Fort Worth Star-Telegram down in Texas. And one of the reasons uh, is GM has a huge plant down there. It's where they make the Cadillac Escalade, Chevy mm-hmm. Suburban, and Tahoe. They were making pickup trucks back then. In fact, they had just, when I moved down there for that job, they had just converted the plant from making the big rear drive cars like the Fleetwood, Cadillac Fleetwood, the Buick Roadmaster, Chevy yes. Impala, um, that big, big Impala. Uh, those are the cars the, you could smuggle your buddies into the drive-in in the trunk with, you know, those kind of that's cars. That's right. right? <laughs> you could, uh, six or seven of them. Yeah, they were massive yeah. cars. Not that I, we ever did that. We're just saying. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've, I've left the auto beat for a few years and, you know, over that past, I guess, 25 years for some other assignments, covered Wall Street for a while, covered consumer and retail, which I I just completely hated covering. Um, but came back to it because after spending a few years in New York covering Wall Street, covering mergers and acquisitions uh, for Bloomberg, you know, that gives you a lens into all the industries because you're covering sales, divestitures, mergers and deals for, you know, companies in all industries. And really, other than maybe tech um, and to a degree, the pharmaceutical industry. I just didn't see anything with the intrigue uh, that, that I see in the auto industry. And the auto industry has cooler products than, than both of us, for the most part. I mean, tech has some bragging rights, but cars are getting high tech these days. So I, I came back to covering this in about 2015, which was about the era, you know, the time when electrification and even autonomy was, you know, starting to become a big theme and, you know, and, and a new thing. And was that then the impetus for, you know, your line of thinking as far as um, getting to understand GM more, you know, um, getting to understand Mary and what, you know, watching her rise through the ranks of that organization and, of course, taking the helm. Um, and then, you know, in the last while saying, I need to document this. I need to get this story out because it's, it's important. And maybe you could tell the listeners, you know, kind of what your thought process was on that. Sure. So I moved back from New York to Detroit in, uh, what was it, late 14, 15. She was, you know, had, had just gotten in the job and they were in the middle of the ignition switch debacle. And I started covering General Motors again. And in that time, uh, she had dismantled this huge global empire that Alfred Sloan, the legendary GM chairman from the late 20s through the late 50s, early 60s. I think he was an honorary chairman in the early 60s, but, you know, 40 years with General Motors. Um, he had, he bought Holden in Australia and Opel and Vauxhall in Europe and GM was in a hundred markets and she had to fix all of that. Uh, it was fabulously successful under Sloan, but like the rest of the GM empire had declined. And then she started, you know, she bought crews in order to make self-driving vehicles and they had, they were pushing the bolt, but they were really developing this Ultium platform. Uh, to make electric vehicles and try to get in step with Tesla. And this is, you know, 2016, 17. Everybody's trying to get in step with Tesla. I, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, specifically profiling General Motors in this book because uh, I, I think their story is really a fascinating one. But I also in the book give credit to Tesla. I don't think we'd be where we are 
in the, you know, in, in sort of this, this historic transformation from gasoline to electric vehicles without what Tesla has done. Um, I was going to add, I certainly agree with that. You know, they are the catalyst of the market space. Uh, as I mentioned before, I hit the record button. I do a lot of public outreach through the EV Society work, volunteer work that I do. And part of my EV 101 talk is looking at some of the uh, the tipping points in the market. And we all have different views of different tipping points. But, you know, I strongly think that the Model 3 revealed with the amount of reservations that they got from a car unseen prior to even the live stream and then continuing that was unheard of in the auto market. I mean, I think the closest analogy might've been the 64, 64 and a half Mustang where they where Ford got around 60,000, but that was, I believe, a vehicle that you could see that they were starting to you know, do roadshow uh, and, and go out there and tour with. So this was, I mean, even before that live stream, they had well over 130,000 reservations. And these were $1,000 deposits, weren't 10 bucks or something. Mm -hmm. So there's substantial money. And I think their their rate of click-throughs and rate of you know of actual purchase on these $1,000 was quite high. So I think that kind of really shone a light on the market to say, this is something we need to look at. This is going to be a viable market because this is kind of proving that it can work. And as you said, you know, companies like GM under Mary's leadership had, had already been thinking of this, you know, around that time frame, you know, that this is a market that we really need to get into. And Tesla probably just firmed up that decision to move forward. Yeah. Um, one of the things that fascinated me about the GM story is to remember, I, I covered it through the 2000s. So what's happening there? They're the biggest producer of gas guzzling large SUVs and as big as Ford in, in pickup trucks. And we have this big oil shock that really, that starts to push them closer to bankruptcy. Um, the financial crisis pushed them in, but the fact that they, they were basically a one-trick pony uh, and the company had declined so much over so many decades, um, you know, I, I covered that period. And then I covered the rebirth through bankruptcy government ownership and the IPO. So I, I saw the, you know, the decline, death, and rebirth of GM, and I took a couple of years off to go to New York and came back, and you've got this female CEO who's trying to, you know, undo some traditions, like, you know, people not doing their jobs and not you know, owning up to responsibility, and people not taking quality seriously enough, and people not, you know, the, the company itself always wanting to be the biggest in the world at any cost. Uh, she got rid of that tradition. They're now, you know, probably third or, you know, arguably fourth, um, but way more profitable. So they now have the money to put into electric vehicles. I thought, you know, this is one of the biggest strategic transformations we've seen of, you know, a major North American company since I've been alive. Arguably GE was a bigger one under Jack Welch, but, uh, this this is huge, and, and 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 you know this historic company. And if you talk to her and talk to people who know her, what she's really trying to do is bring back this this era of greatness and respectability that GM had in the '60s when you know when she was very young. Um, and she grew up. Her father was a, a, a dye maker uh, in Pontiac, Michigan, in one of the plants there. But she you know she had this vision to do that, and she was willing. Uh, along with the team that worked around her to really upset some traditions. And I thought, you know, there's something interesting going on here. And I did a cover story in Business Week, uh, the one you referred to, uh, I think it was 2019. And that was sort of the genesis for this. Uh, I, 
we actually did a package of stories. There was one in the magazine, and then there was one our Canadian team in Toronto did about, at the time, we thought Oshawa was going down. Right, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But GM had also built this uh, tech center in Toronto uh, where they do artificial intelligence work and that sort of thing. And, and you know, and that's sort of, you know, if you want to geek out like an economist, that's Schumpeter at play, right? You have, you know, one set of jobs being destroyed and a new set of jobs being created. And the problem always with Schumpeter is the guy who loses his job isn't the same guy who gets the job. That's <laughs> right. Business. So exactly. we had, you know, Toronto wrote about that. And we wrote about Hamtramck, which is the kind of donut hole city in Detroit, because it didn't look like that plant was going to survive Mary's transformation plan either. And then we did the cover story. And, and the guy who kind of helped me edit uh, a lot of the other stuff and, and, you know, worked very closely on this whole project said, hey, save your notes. If she pulls this off, it's a book. And I said, hmm, okay, I think I will. And he goes, you should talk to my agent. And, and he's, this guy's published a number of books. And, then, and so I talked to her and I said, so look, let's wait a couple of years. And if GM pulls this off and sells EV successfully, we'll write a book. And she said, why? Why wait? <laughs> someone else is going to write it. And I said, yeah, but we don't know if they're going to pull this off. And she said, well, what you've already told me is, you know, probably two thirds of the transformation, you know, chronologically speaking, has been done because she's already cut all these overseas operations and she already bought crews and she's already announced these big investments in electric vehicles and they're already starting to work on the Hummers. She said, so, you know, this is like the final part going electric is underway. So just write it. And then, and she said, look, let the publishers decide if they don't want to buy the book and they tell us to wait another year, fine, but let's see what they say. Let's see if they think the time is right. So of course somebody did, but that was the impetus of just watching um, this company that was once one of you know, the most respected company in the world decline over the decades, fail spectacularly, come back to life, you know, largely thanks to the U.S. government. Um, but then, you know, Mary Barra kind of comes from out of nowhere and not only is there to help bring the company back, but then really starts to, um, I think, make an honest attempt to, to restore it. And look, she makes mistakes along the way, and those are in the book. Um, there are missteps. That's always going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it's a huge, it's a huge change to an iconic company at the time that we're having the biggest change to transformation uh, transportation since you know gasoline and diesel engines replaced buggy whips and steam. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, this is this is a good drama here. And look, she gets in a fight with the union along the way. She's a fight with Donald Trump along the way. <laughs> well, who hasn't? But that's another story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, right. but it was a direct result of what she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to convince a lot of her own engineers and managers that, that going electric, that this was the time to do it. And this was mm-hmm. the right investment to make. And, and everybody is still sort of wrestling with the timing on, you know, is it right to go electric? Are consumers ready? And that's the, you know, probably $164 billion question. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, it's a pretty good, that's a pretty good drama all in. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's kind of how I came up with the thing. Well, you know, I look forward when Sony makes this into a movie of the week, because you're absolutely right. It's, it's an exciting uh, step through all those, those uh, periods of time where, you know, again, going against the grain, changing, changing old past, changing historical ways of, of doing business and, and operating, you know, uh, she's really come in and she, you're absolutely right. Not perfect, you know, with resistance and make some missteps, but um, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that this story and, you know, to get where we are, where we're seeing GM today, 
it was a lot of hard work, you know, coming from somebody who has a really humbled background. You know, you mentioned her father, you know, she started in the business as well. I think she's an engineer, if I remember reading correctly by trade and, you know, worked her way up uh, through, through the different elements there. So, you know, has again, that unique perspective on, you know, what's it look like all downstream and what can I see upstream on everything in the big picture. And, you know, I tell people like, remember, um, you know, we talked about Tesla earlier and so many people that love Elon and stuff. Great. You know, he's trying to change the world. But at the end of the day, you can't change it unless you're making money, unless you're a profitable company. Right. You can't do what you have to do. And these companies aren't charities that are going to be just giving products away and and not trying to make a dollar. They have to make serious profits to be able to continue to grow and advance and and do, you know, get into this transformational landscape that we're seeing. So steps have to be given. You know, you mentioned some of the uh, the closings, uh, you know, they sold Lordstown off, right? Um, you know, some of the things they had to do to be able to pull back and and tighten the belt to to get these steps forward. Um, so when you started again following GM up closely, you were already in tune with you know those early electrification plans. Then correct? Right. Um, so I said one of the GM cover stories I did in the two thousands was when they did the Volt with a V. And that was a big step for GM because, you know, again, they were the gas guzzler company. Uh, they hated the Prius. They hated the kind of press and accolades and brand image that, that uh, the Prius gave Toyota. And they hated government regulations on fuel economy, all that sort of thing. And they always fought that. And, you know, it was Bob Lutz who, you know, and this is a guy who raced cars and loved luxury cars and sports cars and said, why don't we do something that, out Prius is the Prius. And, and it did technologically because it actually drove on pure electric drive for, I think, 35 miles with the first version of the car. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a great sales success, but I think it was a technological success for GM. And one mm-hmm. of the things it did, I remember walking through the battery lab, um, which still exists today. In fact, it's probably you know three, four, five times the size of the one where they did the, the whole, but mm-hmm. uh, it gave them knowledge and it kind of it, it reinvigorated some of these battery PhDs and EV engineers that had been kind of kicking around with not a lot to do since the EV1. Mm-hmm. And they brought in some more expertise. And it did enable them to do the bolt. All these things were kind of step-by-step plays for them to, to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, first, honestly, I thought the first-generation Volt was a really great car, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually looked good. The second one just looked like any other rent-a-car compact. I thought that right. was a big mistake. Right. Uh, technologically better, I think it had more, you know, all-electric range. But mm-hmm. uh, the first one looked like something different. And, the, you know, the dashboard sort of had that um, iPod, you know, Apple sort of simplistic human-machine mm-hmm. interface that was really cool. Uh, they did some neat things with that vehicle. And then they kind of went back to just a strong plug-in hybrid for the second one, which I thought was, you know, that was a big mistake. But but it did set them on this path to where they are. Yeah, you know, kind of learn to walk for your run approach to a degree. And, you know, I think I think they learned a lot with the EV1. I mean, you know, there's those two uh, picks that are out there, you know, who killed the electric car, uh, one and two. And, and you know, Bob is featured more into number two. And, you know, a lot of people will, will harp on GM about that. But, you know, when you really look at that, Sure, there's probably some big oil and policy and lobbying that's part of that decision, but it was just the wrong timing for that. It wasn't the right time 
to introduce that vehicle because there isn't there wasn't a supply chain there wasn't a support network there wasn't the really the technology to make it viable for mass market consumer adoption and you know listeners and watchers need to understand that if a, a OEM brings a vehicle to market um if they stop selling it they still have to support that i believe it's 15 years under the law correct right um so you have to have yeah. parts service and stuff i mean it's not something that's arbitrarily done so was it a bit of an experiment, the EV1, just to kind of get a pulse and see that it could be done? I don't know, you know, to a degree. Well, it was. It, mm-hmm. it, and, and there's uh, the guy who oversaw that former, now retired vice chairman of the company, Harry Pierce, was over that. Mm-hmm. He, and he said it was an experimental test bed. And I think they lost, I can't remember the number in my own book, but it was either one or two billion that they lost on that vehicle. Um, I think, look, the only, and they were, they were all way ahead. The only real uh, mistake I think they made there was, and this comes from the GM general counsel's office. If you guys leave those on the road, we have to support it. And then there are potential liability issues. There weren't that many of them out there. The people really loved them and they took them and crushed them. It, it, it really, and of course it gave them a terrible reputation with the environmental and pro EV and pro technology crowd. They should have just left them out there and supported the vehicle. It did two things. One, it really upset some customers, which you never want to do. But the other thing it did is when they crushed them, it kind of told the world, yeah, we're done with electrification because we're there. there is no EV2 because yeah. we don't even want to service and support EV1 uh, yeah. anymore. And it kind of said, yeah, you know, it was a nice little experiment, but we're, we're back to selling, you know, nine mpg hummer h2s and that sort of thing <laughs> had the and, sense of being final right yeah, like this is look, we're out of it this, again so yeah right it's part of the thing you and i were talking about earlier there's this mm-hmm. love to hate factor with general motors part mm-hmm. of it's the ev1 part of and, and, and selling the gas guzzlers the, the environmental crowd doesn't like that part of it is um bankruptcy mm-hmm. you know it, it, they sort of look like uh a loser company that needed government help a certain kind of voter or a certain kind of, you know, people don't like that. Um, and, you know, I, I think that one was a hard moniker, you know, government motors, that was a hard thing for them to shake. Um, and there were credibility issues because then of course you had ignition switch and, you know, that hurt their credibility. So, um, you know, there, there's something Elon Musk told me in an interview in the 2000s. And this, I spent a couple of days with him when Tesla, they were only selling the Roadster. The Model S was a clay model um, in the SpaceX studio in Hawthorne, actually, Hawthorne, California. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the drivetrain for the Model S was stuffed in a Mercedes CLS coupe. And Elon let me drive it around. And I, you know, my question was, why would anyone buy a car from you? We don't know if you're going to be here to honor a warranty in a couple of years. One of the things he said was brilliant. And he was right. And it gets into this, you know, people love to hate GM and some people love to hate America's domestic car companies. He said, the Germans have been kicking America's ass in luxury cars and Toyota and Honda have been kicking American, America's ass in, in mainstream cars for years. Silicon Valley knows how to win. If you go to Frankfurt, if you go to Tokyo, you go anywhere in Europe, everyone has an iPhone, everyone's surfing on Google. Silicon Valley knows how to win. And when I give them a Silicon Valley electric car, they're gonna love us. And he was right. He was 100% right. Tesla's brand is supremely powerful because of that. And that's something that GM is going to have to overcome on this. You know, as part of their, you know, they have a look, 
a lot of people buy GM vehicles, still the number one seller in the United States and in Canada. Um, so they have people who like their brands. And that Chevy brand can sell everything from a giant pickup truck to a tiny Chevy Trax to a Corvette. Um, it's got tremendous breadth. So it's, you know, it's not like this is a dead brand company or by any means, but there are challenges to them. And that's one of them. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, again, as we said earlier, hats off to Tesla for really kickstarting this market and having that vision and for Elon having that vision. And, uh, Ian, I drive a Model 3. I, I mentioned before I press the record button, I just absolutely love the vehicle. It's just been, it's been great for me, especially as an all electric that it is. And it, I, it's a car I don't worry. I just get in and go wherever I want. I don't even think about it being electric, even though I'm getting those benefits. And I think that's the user experience we need to get to, to get to that mass market adoption right it's for because people get into their cars today they turn the key they they you know they expect it to start and go as long as they have gas in it so they expect it to run and when it doesn't then you know something then they have to get it fixed but uh you know the expectation is i'm buying this new car it's going to last me 5 10 12 years whatever it is um so that they're expecting that with evs and uh and of course then the price and the cost parity which are other barriers but we're slowly getting there um, so you're right. I mean, one of the things I always say about GM is that, uh, and I'm so happy that they got into the electrification marketplace because for for the market to come down in that price to get to more of that mass market uh, adoptability framework, part of it is the cost. You know, I can talk to you and others about the return on the investments you'll make by spending a bit more on EV on gas savings and maintenance savings and maybe potential lower insurance costs and things like this, but a lot of people are still, this is the upfront sticker price and that's all I see. So I've got, you know, to try to do what we can do to help lower that. And, you know, we haven't seen the cost parity that was maybe predicted by some analysts only a few years ago that we would get to that $100, you know, per kilowatt battery pack in the US and, uh, you know, it, and that prices are going to come down to, you know, a, a $25,000 Civic, you know, whatever for a comparable EV. They're not yet today. So I'm really glad that GM is one of the one of the major players because you need a big company like them and like VW Group, you know, again with the mass scale ability that they that, that you know that they can do to help bring those market market uh, prices down. And that's one thing you talk about in your book is Mary's, and she's out there saying the same lines all the time. You know, EVs are for everyone, and that's what we want to get to. But you have to have something in place to be able to do that, and you know. Without a platform, so we talked about the bolts earlier, but without without an EV platform that gives you that, you know, uh, famous lines that Elon's always said about economies of scale, you can't get to to offer the market what you need to in in the variety and and do that change in the shift. Do, do you agree with that line of thinking and and what Mary's done there? Yeah, and that, look, that's one of the reasons I, I picked GM as. And I, I like their total story, though, the, the whole drama we talked about earlier. But their approach to this is, you know, other companies, Hyundai, Kia, Ford, Volkswagen, they've all, and they've all done a very credible job. Um, but ultimately, everybody needs to get to this point where they have a battery pack that is going to be dedicated for EVs and host just electric vehicles. Volkswagen's doing it. And the first of their vehicles are coming out right now as well. Um, Ford has to do it. The Koreans have to do it. And the Japanese are going to have to do it. But GM is pretty serious. And, and look at what they're launching next year. $30,000 Equinox, $40,000 Blazer. They want to get 
to the point where it's not just luxury vehicles. And that's really what the electric vehicle market is today, isn't it? I mean, your Tesla, if you have a Model 3, that's not super expensive, but it's still more expensive than the average internal combustion vehicle by, by a Yeah, year. correct. For sure. And they, look, in, in the U.S., these are in, in U.S. dollars, the average new vehicle costs $48,000. So part of that's because of inventory shortages, prices unnaturally high, but it would have been 45000 otherwise. Yeah, by the way, it's 55 in Canada. I got that number yeah. a while ago, so we're not that far off. The average electric vehicle is 67,000 US dollars. These are absolutely luxury vehicles, even if they're not sold under luxury brands. So, and they're they're out of reach of most buyers. GM wants to put them within reach of all new car buyers. And and, and you're going to see that happen next year even the pickup truck which, you know, albeit is designed for fleets, but it'll start at 40,000. Um and they're really the ones making the push to do that. And you do, you need those economies of scale. You need the dedicated platform. You need to start getting volume quickly. Um, and you need to make vehicles that can sell to fleets. I, I think they get that, so does Ford, whether it's pickup truck fleets or rental car fleets. Uh, you know, Hertz is all over this, buying Teslas and Polestars and a big deal with General Motors as well. You got to get scale. So what Ultium really is, this Ultium battery that GM always talks about, there's no magic chemistry to it. It's no better or worse or different than, you know, a Ford battery or a Tesla battery or anybody else's. It's a commercialization plan. It's basically an industrial strategy to take this platform that can, you know, basically, I mean, they modify it larger, bigger, smaller, all that wider, but it can make everything from a small Chevy Equinox on up to this big gigantic Hummer and a Cadillac Escalade, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and pickup trucks, um, and they say that it actually cuts the development time for vehicles almost in half. You know, they got the Hummer done in twenty-seven or thirty months. Usually, new vehicles take about four years. Right. So, you, you, when you do that, you're also, you know, you're obviously cutting costs because you're reducing engineering time, mm -hmm. um, and you know, there are fewer different um, just platform parts that go with it. They, the, the number of electric motors GM is using is much smaller than the family of engines and transmissions they currently have. So you are getting the cost of the battery down, but also everything that goes around it. Mm -hmm. They're getting economies there too by, you know, they're using, I think, two different inverters and three or maybe four. I think it's three different electric motors just paired up differently for front drive, rear drive, all-wheel drive. Mm -hmm. and, and you start to get efficiencies there that you can't get with internal combustion vehicles and transmission and engine combinations. And that's also how you get the cost down. So you, your, your premise is right for a variety of reasons. And, and everyone's going to do this, but, but that's really what GM is pushing for. And it makes sense, right? Because, you know, the top two executives, Mark Royce is president and Mary is, uh, is the CEO. They're engineers. Uh, Mark came out of product development. She came out of manufacturing and they work together to, to try to figure out what's the most economical and industri smartest industrial way to do this. And their plan's credible. Doesn't mean they're going to be the winner. I don't even conclude that in the book because there are just all kinds of pitfalls to doing this. But this is how you get to the next step in um, in electrifying transportation. And here, you know, here's the other point: if you know if climate change is really the concern and and carbon emissions, eliminating carbon emissions is your goal. You're not going to do it selling $67,000 and $110,000 luxury cars to right. wealthy people who have three or four other vehicles in their garage. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to get to the mass market. And, and that's what this kind of strategy can do. 
Absolutely. And, you know, and the Equinox reveal it was was a major first step into moving into that mass market. Right. I I did a, an episode covering that reveal. And, uh, you know, and I said, you know, I truly a mass market EV because, you know, you got to get that pricing down. But you still have to have the capabilities. Right. Again, if you price something at 30 grand, but it's 100 miles, well, nobody's really going to buy it either. So you've got to give something that is usable from a use case, a daily driver and a short maybe intercity hopper. And then still gives you the ability to road trip with some good fast charging, working collaboratively on, on investing and growing infrastructure uh, charger networks and making the, the payment plan easy. You know, this new Connect 360 mechanism that GM has where they'll partner with, with all these different uh, EV uh, charging providers, infrastructure providers, and just they'll just do the transaction. So you plug in like Tesla and you walk away and when you're done, you unplug and the payments magically happened in the background. You don't worry about it. You'll see it on your statement. Again, everything to, to make it easy. And, you know, I love when vehicles come out and they're not like, you know, Tesla's sim simple from the minimalistic aspect of it. But a lot of people are scared with that, all that technology being just on a screen and all the functions. I, I'm old school. My first car was a 74 Vegas. So, you know, I got my feet wet with GM, maybe not the greatest way, but hey, when you're 16, <laughs> the buses, bus pass is ditched and my bike stays in the garage and off I go and just with my grand, my buddies in. So, uh, you know, the sense of freedom, but you've got to make, you know, got to make the use case. It's got to be usable for, for customers. And I think that's what GM sees. You know, they see that viewpoint as others, you know, Stellantis is trying to get there and we mentioned VW and uh, a lot of the other groups that are, are making inroads. Some are ahead of it. Toyota, Honda, still kind of lagging, still you know betting on different different futures. Now, before we we start getting to close the conversation, um, David, I wanted to ask. So, do you think then that engineering background and 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 the beginnings of, of Mary's you know work environment and her history is kind of really the genesis for this thought process into EVs? Where do you think that came from to get her on that path? So early in the early chapters of the book, this is in there, she she was identified as a fast riser in the company. And she was put, um, basically, they, they would take people that they thought had a real future rising up at General Motors, and they would sort of shadow an executive. And she did shadow the chairman, who was at the time Jack Smith, but she also shadowed Vice Chairman Harry Pierce, and Harry was over the EV program and, and I think maybe hybrids or fuel cells or something like that. Um, and they had talked about electrification as a means to basically get the auto industry out of this regulatory treadmill they were on where they were always trying to lower emissions and improve fuel economy. But that never got them out of the regulatory conversation. It just would satisfy regulators and politicians and, and activists for a time. And then they would come back at them again to improve fuel economy again. Right. So, and that was but, more of a, a compliance approach, was it not? Would correct. you say? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, they, they wanted to get GM out of, you know, well, the auto industry out of that. And they knew at that point in history was, was unrealistic. But, um, you know, I, I think that maybe planted the idea later on when she was made head of product development in 2011. Uh, that's when they started working on the Bolt. She really pushed them. You know, the engineers wanted to kind of go minimalistic and come up, you know, 125, 150 miles of range because at the time it beat the Nissan Leaf and Tesla didn't have the Model S yet on the road while they were working on the Bolt. Eh, good enough. And we'll get California clean air credit so we can continue to sell Suburbans and pick up trucks fine. And she said, you know, 
Tesla's working on this stuff, and who knows where Nissan's going to be. Basically, she said, if you come out with under 200 miles, you're going to, we're going to embarrass ourselves. And she pushed them, and I think the first poll came out with, I, I believe it was 234, 237 miles of range. That was, you know, that, that it's a compact car. Mm-hmm. It beats a lot of vehicles that are out there now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now the, the EUV is up to 265 miles of range. That beats a lot of vehicles that are out there now. So you know, I, I think at a minimum, she is an electrical engineer, by the way. That's her training. She saw the value of the technology. And she just didn't want to accept just doing something that would be done purely for compliance. In a lot of ways, the Bolt was. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe the origins of it were, were driven. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's a compact. Americans mm-hmm. don't really buy compacts. I don't think Canadians love them either. Except you guys have more expensive gasoline, so they have sold better. <laughs> we used than- to like four-door compacts, but now we follow the U.S. trend of pickups and SUVs. So we're right yeah, there with I mean, you. The world does. Europe used yeah. to like them too, and now mm-hmm. now it's all mid-sized crossover SUVs in Europe. Um, but you know that, that that's the problem with the vehicle. What Tesla did is, I mean, they not only proved the tech, you know, the technology was was very good, but you could make cool cars that people really desired, and and that's what I, where I think one of the areas where they really dragged the industry, uh, kind of kicking and screaming into it. Mm-hmm. But you know, to Mary Barra's credit, I think she said, you know, if you want to get people really interested in this, it can't be science project electric range. It's got to be right. something real. And you know, so she she identified that early on and pushed the team to do it, and that was you know. Where would they be if she hadn't done that with the bolt today? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they probably would have boosted range by then. But I, I, I think the brand would probably stand. I mean, you liked your first Leaf, but the Leaf's not really a factor in the EV market right now. Right. Correct. Um, it was a bit of a motivator when they first came out. You know, in twenty ten, right? Again, right? a, a more affordable mass market, but they lagged behind and not really brought it up to where more. Or the table stakes of that, you know, three hundred mile, you know, thirty minute or less charging road charging kind of is 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 now, you know, for most table stakes. So, which is right. unfortunate because they had that opportunity, right? Yeah, and I GM I did that to a lesser degree with the Bolt. Nissan, mm-hmm. I think, sat on the the leaf far longer. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one area where I think, and I point this out in the epilogue of the book that I think, you know, going from Bolt to Ultium. It's not a bad strategy at all, but, you know, the Bolt has, you know, that's basically been on the road for six years now and they freshened it and, and mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the range has gotten better, but it's essentially the same vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, they really needed an interim step if they wanted to make the case that, you know, that they're, they're a serious player. Um, I know they are because I see the investment, I see the plants breaking ground. I see governments, tax incentives in the states where they're doing it. Because I, I hear from people all the time, again, there's love to hate factor about General Motors, <laughs> uh, where they say, well, GM just gives out press releases. They're not, they're never going to make the vehicles. I can tell you they are. Uh, I mean, they're, they're building Cadillac lyrics and Hummers right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that there is work being done in these plants to make mm-hmm. these vehicles. And I know money's been spent and I know they're getting government tax incentives to build it. And their stock price would get crushed if they pulled back on any of those plans. So it mm-hmm. will happen. Um, I do understand the skepticism based on the history, though. Right. Um, but, you know, they could have gotten, they could have headed off that skepticism, I think, if there was some vehicle in between Bolt and the Hummer. And since they talk about bringing Cadillac back, 
as a hot brand with electrification, they probably should have had some cool Cadillac EV in there in the interim to, you know, with greater range, more usable, more appealing vehicle, maybe mm-hmm. like a midsize SUV sort of thing. You know, that probably would have done the corporate brand, the company's credibility and the Cadillac brand a lot of good. But hey, they've got a bunch of vehicles coming out in the next couple of years. I mean, I, I, if they hit all their, their launch targets by early 2024, they could have more nameplates on the ground than Tesla. Yeah. And Mary's been out, you know, saying they want to have a million EVs uh, and sold in the U.S. by 2025. So it's a big statement when you're selling, what, 25,000 volts a year or something or six. I don't even remember what the number is. Oh, right. I think, uh, they, you know, they just. Put or out is that a quarter? I'm trying to remember. It's, it's less than 100K uh, for sure. Year to, in a year. Yeah. Year to date. They have sold about 22,000 bolts in bolt okay. UVs. But there was a lot of stock sale and everything, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, early in the year, they couldn't, they were still grounded because mm-hmm. of the uh, the battery fire issue. But, mm-hmm. you know, they are expanding production. They say they can make 70,000 plus globally. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine they finished the year 2030, you know, well, 30, 40,000 bolts in the US. They'll be behind Ford because Ford's selling the Mach E and the right. Lightning pickup is, is underway now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can I can see GM again leapfrogging them maybe next year, mm-hmm. uh, if not certainly in 2024, because they've just got so many more vehicles coming out. Yeah. So it's an interesting dynamic that you that you present in the book and, and what you've spoken as well about, you know, the background that Mary has being the electrical engineer even more so. And then, you know, the, the history where their family working in, in the automotive marketplace for years and, and, you know, being surrounded by that, you know, that environment uh, growing up and, and, you know, going to college, university, and then pursuing that. Um, so bringing that background and then understanding the business fundamentals, because, you know, when you're to, to, again, to sustain a business and to grow it, you've got to make money and you have to have profits. And when you're public, you have to pay shareholders and everything. So understanding right. all that, being able to merge the two into a philosophy and a transformation that, you know, says yes to this and yes to this, it will work. And all we're seeing right now is just the time that, that there, you know, it takes to spend that $35 billion plus in investments to get from A to B. We're just in the in that bit of the gap. And had it not been for COVID, we might have seen that, you know, Altium maybe show up last year or probably maybe a little, you know, even quicker, maybe 2020, who knows? Um, obviously, you know, what's going on globally has impacted many different things and nobody could have forecasted or predicted predicted this. So um, I think it's a unique, it's a unique perspective that she brings that not, not a lot of other uh, OEM leaders have, you know, yeah, they have different pros and cons, but I think maybe that bonding of the, those two areas kind of helped, you know, or really has helped put, put GM onto that electrification path. Would you agree with that? I do. I think, um, I don't think it's COVID that held them up from getting vehicles out sooner. Mm-hmm. I think there was a period, um, and there's a chapter about this in the book too, where, where they, and it, they weren't alone in this, probably that 2017 to 2019 timeframe, there was large disagreement in the car business about how quickly this was going to grow and, you know, electric vehicle sales, how quickly consumers would, would embrace them. Um, and remember during the early part of that 2017, it was still not really known if Tesla was going to survive. Uh, I think Elon Musk said at one point in that time, <laughs> it was a week or two from running out of money. That's right. He was sleeping in the, in the factory, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And there were voices inside GM and really at all the car companies saying, why are we doing this? This is, you know, we're answering a question consumers are not exactly asking. There was a lot of that sort of talk. And I think she had to push through that. They were also working on the Ultium platform. But, you know, they announced that Ultium platform in 2017 and they decided, I think it was early 2019, to do the Hummer. Mm-hmm. So there was two years in there of development time. But, you know, could they have started working on an EV off Ultium earlier? Uh, possibly. Um, or could they have done something that was off of you know, an enhanced version of the Bolt platform earlier than that? Yeah, yeah they probably could have. Uh, I don't uh, think they were yeah. totally sold. In fact, I remember interviewing Mark Royce. Uh, about the Hummer project, and this is before they were acknowledging that they were going to do it. I, I wrote the first story that they were going to do it, mm-hmm. and he said, um, "I said, you know, what about the summer idea?" He goes, "Ah, you know, nothing to announce there." He goes, "But we will do some sort of pickup truck that's not your kind of work truck. It's more like, you know, a recreational, personal use type of truck." He was sort of talking about the Hummer, um, and I think it wasn't long after that that Ford said, "You know what? We're going to do it, regular pickup truck." So I think Ford did embrace the idea that something like your basic work use pickup truck could go electric faster than GM did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think probably Mary and Mark Royce were on board with electrification. I think they had to maybe pull some other people in line um, and then they had to get the money to do it. And, and then they right. had to get all ready. There was a lot, you know, a lot of steps in there, but um, not only COVID did it, I just think it's, mm-hmm. you know, tough to make the leap industrially and, you know, probably some ways psychologically and in the same way that consumers are. I I talk to people who are fascinated by EVs, but then they say, Oh, I could never own one because I I take road trips. Mm -hmm. And um, to those people, I always say the same thing. Like really never. Um, In 1985, did you say to your friends, you would never own a cell phone Mm -hmm. because they were the size of a suitcase, Mm -hmm. hugely expensive and the service (laughs) sucked. Um, Never. Huh? Never is a long time, even if That's you're a 60 great point. years old in time. That's right. Um, <laughs> and by the way, now cell phones are, you know, they fit in your pocket. They're hugely expensive and the service sucks. <laughs> We're heads down society now. You know, I try to talk to people when I ride in the train or whatever, and it's like everybody's just in their zone. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I'm old school, though. I, you know, I have a phone and I have all that stuff, but I still, I still like to go shake people's hands and go talk to people. So. But, you know, unfortunately, we couldn't do that here today, but uh, we will get an opportunity to meet. Well, you know, I really appreciate your perspective and observations that you've been able to to not only share today on this episode, but in the fascinating book. Again, you know, um, I, I encourage everybody to get this book and to, to really read it. It's a it's an extremely easy read, well written, easy to understand. And, you know, it provides a lot more in depth to to you know the person that is Mary and and the changes that she's had that she's been able to bring to GM and help move that company into the direction that they've done which is no easy feat you know as you said at the top you know it's a global huge decades decades long organization uh lived organization and these are big ships to write and to turn and even the electrification is not an overnight you know you mentioned that 2016, 2017, 2019 period, you know, yeah, there were projections, oh, we're going to double EVs, you know, and I remember hearing people say by 2025, you know, we're driving all EVs, and I'm going, there's no way that's happening, like, that's just total bonk, but, you know, but there is a an acceleration, we are seeing mm-hmm. the curve, you know, we've had that kind of initial wave, and now we're seeing it go up, but this is a huge industry, right, there's 
I forget what the global uh, light duty vehicle fleet is today, but it's it's a big number. And when you're only selling 7 million EVs a year or plugins globally a year as of 2021, we might hit what nine or 10 this year on that upswing from what I'm reading. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, but it's going to take a long time to even change out the fleet. I predict 2031 to 2033, you know, as narrow as I can be that we might see that 50%, you know, of market sales globally hit hit electrification in the US. I don't know. Canada, we might see that because we have a smaller market a little sooner. But even Canada, you know, two million for us is a good year. And we sold something like 75,000 EVs. So we're on track to do that plug-in. So it's a very small part of that. So um yeah, that's um I mean you see a 50% by 2030 forecast from a few different sources, give mm-hmm. or take. I think it's possible. I don't know that we mm-hmm. get there, but I, pretty close. I mean, you think yeah. that, you think in the U.S., China, you'll see it for sure because the regulators are mandated, probably in Europe as well. Um, right. Maybe in Canada, too, gasoline is more expensive. Like, I, I think high, high fuel prices are going to push people that way. Mm-hmm. So that will help EV sales. Um Luxury markets, maybe I think fifteen percent. I know mm-hmm. it's twelve percent of global sales. I think it's fifteen or more in the U.S. Maybe twenty, and I think most of that, a good chunk of that, will be electric by twenty thirty for sure. So, how much of the mass market does? I mean, look, if I if I had to venture a guess, and this is you know me throwing at a dartboard because I don't have. I mean, look, the people who <laughs> make this forecast, they're looking what what vehicles are being launched. They're looking at product plans, mm-hmm. and then they're making an assumption how much each will sell. Mm-hmm. I would guess in the U.S., forty percent by mm-hmm. then will be electric. Yeah. Um, but you know, there there are things that could make it sixty by then. Mm-hmm. There are things that could make it thirty by then, like um, you know, battery minerals, cobalt, mm-hmm. nickel, lithium availability, and pricing. Now that that plays a big role in it. Now, you know, what happens if someone comes out with a great solid state battery that lowers the cost of a lot of these um, of batteries themselves, improves the power mm-hmm. density. You know, that's something that could push it to 60 by then because the vehicles are so much, you know, longer range, cheaper, easier to charge fast. Yeah. Uh, build out of infrastructure. There's so many factors that mm-hmm. are going to, you know, improve or hamper adoption rate of EVs. It's just tough to say. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, and hopefully... Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you're bang on with that. I, I would certainly support that. It, you know, 40 to 50 and again, depending on what happens with certain market conditions, you know, if we can get the price down and I think like cell phones, right? People will start seeing them. Well, yeah, I mean, they're not cheap. It's still what, 1100 bucks, 1200 bucks for a new iPhone or something or more, maybe two grand now. It's been so long since I bought one. Um, but it, you know, it, it's more of a commodity and people are, are willing to pay for that because they they know how good they are. You know, they know how efficient and well uh well usable that these devices are so if we can get people to see EVs in that line that viewpoint that they're solid they don't break down you know lots of charging infrastructure 90 percent of the time you're charging at home anyway so it's your home's your gas station and that's low-hanging fruit in the market that i see it is get it out to people that have the ability to home charge don't ignore street parking urban dense areas condos don't ignore it but the people that can early adopt it now and, and for the foreseeable future are those folks that have that ability because it's in most places, electricity is still pretty cheap. I mean, 
I use this 405 numbers here in Canada where I can do 400 kilometers comfortably in my Tesla in most uh, times of the year. And it costs me five bucks to home charge to get 400 kilometers. And people think I'm smoking crack or something that I'm on. I'm, I'm nuts. And I said, you know, we're looking at in here in Ontario, some even lower electric electricity tier rates coming next year that are going to be about a quarter of what they are today. So that five bucks can now be like a medium coffee at Tim Hortons, you know, <laughs> uh, to do the same. And people think I'm even crazier than the last statement. So, but it, you know, we're lucky that it's that cheap and that uh, efficient and we continue to you know, as EV sales grow, so is the infrastructure, so is the refreshing of the power grid and all the components to provide reliability to consumers. That is, you know, and more generation and cleaner generation. So all these things are happening in tandem. So I think when, when consumers can get that ease, that easy feeling, I think, you know, that mass adoption could quickly spike and we could see the 60%, you know, or more. It depends. I'm not sure what the mindset in Michigan is, but that's kind of how I see it here in Ontario. So. I mean, look, I think, I think GM and Ford want to usher that in. Mm-hmm. I, I think they want to, they really want to make it happen uh, because the quicker they get volume up, the sooner they can, they can match profits for EVs that they exactly. make on combustion vehicles. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a business reason for them to really want to push this because they're slave to two masters right now. They need mm-hmm. to put up great returns for their investors. Um but continue to fund the electrification, right? Yeah. And, and fund electrification. <laughs> yeah. And and that in, you know, this interim period is going to be very difficult for them to manage. Mm-hmm. So for them, I think the and especially GM, because they're retrofitting all these assembly plants and building battery plants quickly, right. the quicker they can build the vehicles and find customers, the faster that that investment that's rolling out starts to return money for them. And this, you know, becomes a profitable venture because you know they've got the Wordstown battery plant is making batteries right now. Um, they'll start making them soon. I actually next year in Spring Hill, Tennessee, there's a battery mm-hmm. plant. Another one in Michigan. Yeah, they're going to have four or five, I think. In yeah, the next couple four of in the years. U.S. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, and part of that, I guess, is U.S. policy driven, like you know, to to to, be it able is, to fit into those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just makes. Heavy. Yeah, it makes economic sense, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. It does. I mean, batteries yeah. are heavy. You don't want to shoot mm-hmm. too far. Um, mm-hmm. I do wonder if they'll have one in Canada because they're making the bright drop delivery vans in Ingersoll. Yes, which I'll be getting uh, out to at some point. But uh, I've been con- conversing with GM on that as well. So it's not that, not that far down the road for me. But yeah, or, and and there's even talk about you know again with the allied uh, suppliers and and. Uh, and the North American trade stuff that we have, uh, USMCA, if I've got that correct now, I'm trying to remember what they changed it to. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, uh, we're, we're, color, you know, on Canada's courting automakers to, yeah, you know, start building. We have mining, we have materials. Let's see what we can do. We have a great automotive manufacturing force and tier two and tier three supply chain force here in Ontario, especially and in other parts. We already have, I think, five or six main OEMs building building uh, stuff here. So uh, I, we'd love to see electrification, more electrification. I, I know um, uh, Stellantis is, uh, Chrysler has said they're going to build a battery plant at Windsor. That's already, you know, mm-hmm. under in the plants. I, I would not be surprised to see potentially the new Chrysler um, air or something. I forget what it's called, the air something concept. Um, um, poss- you know, possibly yeah. come to Windsor. Who knows? Could be. You know? Um I mean, they're they're pushing Jeep first, and that's all built in Detroit mm-hmm. and in Ohio. But mm-hmm. yeah, they they 
they don't want to give up on winter. They've got a you know pretty sizable footprint over there already. Yeah, they built the Pacifica uh, Hybrid, the only plug-in minivan in the world, at least. Or shouldn't say the only plug-in minivan because Mercedes are stuff in Europe, but you know, for a passenger or just a regular soccer mom vehicle, uh, they're the only ones doing that. So they have some, some expertise. Mm-hmm. We'll yeah, they'll be a player. Um, yeah. You know, under Carlos Tavares, uh, he's a sharp guy. He came from Nissan, and then he was, at, mm-hmm. you know, the Alliance were no side of it for a while. Uh, but he's a product guy. Yeah, and he knows where the future is. Very smart executive. I, I think they'll be they'll be pushing uh, to uh, be a player. Any final thoughts on the book? Because I, I, again, I was trying not. I don't want to give too much away because I, I really encourage people to to get this and read it. But any final closing comments you wanted to make about this and, and that story? Uh, look, uh, thanks for having me on and talking about the book and, um, and, and you're one of many who've told me that it's, and I take this as a huge compliment that, it, that it's an easy read. It's a fast mm-hmm. read, uh, which is better than being, you know, slow and, <laughs> and taking cumbersome. Yeah. Through yeah. It. No, I, I do mean that in all, but, in all confidence. And, and, and it's look, a really, really good too. book. Yeah. Um, because this is basically a story about a business strategy change, but I wanted to tell it like it's a story, like it's a narrative and not just mm-hmm. get into geeky, you know, business speak about, you know, changing, you know, core competencies and, you know, geographic footprints and all that. that, that I didn't want to tell it that way. I just wanted to mm-hmm. tell the story of this, this executive is trying to make this company, you know, into a new era, car maker, uh, and a, and a leader again. And and I think uh, I think she's got a good story. The, the book, by the way, I let people read it, but it you know it doesn't conclude that GM's the winner in this. I, somebody on Twitter said, "Oh, the cover makes it look like this was written by the Biden administration that they're the leader." <laughs> Tesla gets their props. I actually looked up, and I think Tesla's mentioned a hundred times in the book. So, mm-hmm. you know, for the Tesla fanboys out there who just you know. <laughs> Who need to genuflect at Elon every yeah. chance they get? He gets uh, his due. Um, yeah. But <laughs> but this is a story about a company trying to ch- uh, transform itself uh, after a near death experience that was only a decade ago. Mm-hmm. I, and I think absolutely, I was going to say that's the key takeaway. You know, and 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 the thought leadership of of you know somebody coming up through the ranks to take them in that direction, which is uniquely transformational, as you say. Uh, it's it's a really good read and to understand. I think people that read this will really kind of understand what you know why we get excited when we're, when we're talking about GM. And again, they're not perfect. You know, they do missteps, and there's others. And you're absolutely right; they are not going to solve this electrification problem on their own. The winners will be when we have all the OEMs have the ability to scale and and sell 50, 60 million EVs a year because we're nowhere near that, right? You know, the global. LDV fleets are roughly 70, 75 million a year, give or take the, the, the year as high as 90, maybe as low as 55 or so. But there's a lot of vehicles being sold around the globe every year. And, and that's just, you know, that's the non-commercial fleet. That's just the consumer area predominantly. And we're, you know, we're selling 7 million EVs. So there's a long way to go. So I'd be excited. And not one, there's no one company that's going to do 50 million, right? Nobody's, I think, Toyota, I think was top, maybe. I haven't seen 20. Trying to remember 2021, I think Toyota was number one with like just over 10 million units sold. That's kind of the yeah, top dog right. sphere. That's and right. then VW, yeah, and then, you know, kind of flip flop. Toyota has a wait and see attitude when it comes mm-hmm. to pure electrics. They're they're mm-hmm. out there in the game now. Yeah. Uh, the BZX4, mm-hmm. uh, although the wheel fell off and it <laughs> took them a while to get that going again. Look, it, yeah. it shows you how tough this transition is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I joke about Toyota, but 
they're they're a great manufacturer. Mm-hmm. They may be the best at the actual manufacturing side when it comes to quality and productivity. Right. And uh, they're really, really good at it. GM copied their methods and everybody mm-hmm. else has, has adopted a lot that Toyota has brought to the world of managing automobile factories. And they still have something like a wheel falling off a vehicle. Uh-huh. GM had fires with the Chevy <laughs> Bolt. Tesla has fires. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, actually, everybody who makes EVs has had fires. This isn't easy to do. That's another part of this um, mm-hmm. that, that we didn't really touch on. I don't think we need to because I think everyone faces this challenge equally. But right. um, it, this is this is a tough thing to do. But it's it's coming about. It's pretty exciting if you're if you're into cars, if you follow the car companies, um, you know, if you're just kind of fascinated by business and industry or, or vehicles themselves. It's it's a fascinating time to be watching this. It is. And, you know, again, your book is a snapshot, is a bit of a lens into that environment to give people perspective on what happens. What are some of the lines of thinking and why are some of these companies, you know, why have they done what they did and why are they doing what they're doing moving forward? I think it gives a really great viewpoint for that. And somebody like me that doesn't know all the jargon and that doesn't, you know, yes, I've I've been in the business realm for many years, but, you know, uh, automotive isn't my specialty. So for me to take away a lot of that info and in in an understandable format, I think, again, just goes back to that you've wrote it well, that you've, um, you know, put a lot of thought into conveying those ideas in a succinct manner that everybody can understand. So very well done on that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So the book, Charging Ahead, General Motors, Mary Barra, and the Reinvention of an American Icon, um, uh, it'll be actually coming out. You can pre-order it now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble in the U.S. and others, chapters Indigo here in Canada. Uh, it's going to be released next week, I believe, October 11th, I think, is what I saw. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. you can get the digital version now. The yep. print mm-hmm. launch is October 10th. Well, you can order right. the print book now. It just won't be delivered until then. Um, That's right. You can order the, the website's chargingaheadbook.com. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to order from your retailer, that's fine too. By the way, I always pass by this big chapters uh, on the way, uh, I think through London. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was the best name ever for a big bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> it is, you know, and they're becoming a dying breed. I mean, unfortunately, they you are. Know, with, with the digital economy that we have. But it's, I have to say, and, and, um, it's probably my favorite store to go to. Uh, we have one not just down the road from where I live, just north of Brampton uh, in Caledon, Ontario. And there's one in Brampton that we go to. And I just love the experience. I'm just going there and not being pressure sailed to buy anything, just browse. If I want to sit and flip through a magazine or flip through something, a book, have a yeah. coffee because there's always a Starbucks. And it's just it's just kind of a Zen kind of thing for me. So uh, I really hope they don't close the physical spaces oh. because <laughs> no, I there's something to be said. Um, is there a book signing tour? And they said, where, where would you go? Because there aren't a lot of uh, bookstores. <laughs> That's anymore. it. That's Borders it. is out of business. We have Barnes & Noble in the Detroit metro area, right. but I only know of a hand, you know, not even a handful, mm-hmm. a couple, three of them uh, around. So That's right. Um, well, you'll be able to get them at Chapters Indigo October 17th, my, my understanding, last time I looked on the website. So if you want that physical copy as well, but again, the digital is here. And, you know, you remind me, since we may meet, be meeting up in the short term, uh, I'm going to bring this book with me. <laughs> and if we meet up, I'll, I'll ask you to sign that. It'll be, that'd be great. Be happy to see each other. That'd be fantastic because uh, it is that good of a read. Well, again, you know, I know we've gone a little over the time, but I appreciate it, David, very much that you've taken the time to t- talk about this book and, and let us know your perspective for, you know, why you wanted to share these stories and write it and the significance that it has, you know, into this marketplace. And uh, 
Uh, I wish you all the best, continued success in, in doing what you're doing. I'm sure our paths will cross, as I mentioned, in other auto uh, areas. And um, it'll keep me tuned when, when stuff's happening with you. And maybe we can circle back in six or eight months and have a conversation and just see, hey, how has how have things gone since we last spoke, if you'd be interested yeah, in doing that'd that. That'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. And if I see you at the GM uh, electric vehicle event soon, I will... Uh, I'd be happy to sign the book and meet you in person. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I will bring it with me. I'll make sure I pack it in my bag tonight so I don't forget it as I'll be coming down next week. So again, thank you very much for taking the time um, and best of luck with the book. And uh, I look forward to seeing what comes uh, from you later. Sounds thanks. good. Sure Kenneth, thanks a lot. You're quite welcome. Thanks again for listening, folks. You can email me if you have comments. Email at ev revolution show at gmail.com follow me on twitter at ev rev show i'm also on instagram ev revolution show and if you uh, have any suggestions for shows please let me know thanks again for listening and please everybody stay safe and until the next time i'll see you when i see you